Our text for this morning comes from Genesis 15, not Deuteronomy as it is listed in your bulletins, but Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and then verses 17 and 18. Let us hear God's word to us. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It wasn't supposed to be a date. It was supposed to be hanging out, whatever that means. It was supposed to be dinner and a movie with some friends. But when I opened the door, there was just one friend. The others had called in sick. And then this person jogged ahead of me so that he could open the passenger side door to the car, which was warning sign one and two that this was no dinner with friends. This was rapidly becoming something else. The final nail in the coffin came when we pulled up to a restaurant that was entirely too expensive, and he responded to my look of concern by saying, don't worry, I'm paying as if this made me any less concerned. Somehow my quiet and relaxed evening with friends had become something else. Relying on the fact that I was too nice to embarrass him by simply walking away, I found myself at the beginning of an evening I call the sneak date. Dinner was an event. After we walked in and sat down, my sneak date walked me through the menu, what was good and what was great. He made sure that it was very clear that money was not a concern. So there we were, 
sitting in the nice restaurant, no friends in sight. But I figured that dinner wasn't so much to ask. I was surprised and a little bit frustrated, but he was polite and the food was good. So we talked, and at least I would get a nice evening meal. But that wasn't the extent of the evening's plans. In my initial surprise, I'd forgotten that the plan had been dinner and a movie. Suffice to say, my sneak date had not forgotten. My preference would have been to go to a movie theater. There's other people at a movie theater. But my sneak date had other plans, which is how I found myself sitting in the living room in front of the TV. Again, I looked for friends to show up, and they never did. Do you want some coffee, he asked me, and I thought, well, I do love coffee, and if I'm here, I might as well get a cup of coffee. Sure, I said. So he put the coffee on, and we began awkwardly chit-chatting as the coffee machine gurgled. When he poured me a cup of coffee, he didn't ask how I liked it. He simply handed it to me. I know you like your coffee black, he said. Which is true, but something I had never told him. Then he walked over to the TV and turned it on, and he said, I thought we could watch Casablanca. I heard it's your favorite movie. Which, again, is true, but also something I had never told him. So I hesitantly said, all right. He sat on the couch, one hand out casually in the event that I might want to take his hand, and I sat on the other corner of the couch, feet between, feet between us. That is a sign. It is a clear sign. There were feet in between us. And then I held my coffee with two hands, because you need two hands to drink a cup of coffee for 102 minutes of Casablanca, I sipped that coffee. His hand stayed there, turned up and waiting. But I didn't finish that last sip of coffee until the credits began to roll. That may be the only time in my life that I haven't thoroughly enjoyed that movie. But the movie ended, and I took a deep breath. We were done. It was over. I could leave. Ah, silly me. Once the movie was over, he put on music and said, I know you love to dance. A quick dance to end the night? Certainly persistent. But I realized that we had two very different impressions of how this sneak date was going. In my head, I was thinking, didn't you pick up on all the signs, feet in between us on the couch, 102 minutes of drinking coffee? Really? You didn't catch that? I was also thinking, how did you pull this off? You just pulled off a sneak date. And I was also thinking, what does hang out mean? What is that? I hang out with friends, but this, this was not hanging out. I did all this thinking while he stood there with his hand out, asking me if I wanted to dance. The more that I thought, the crankier I got, so instead of hoping he would catch the drift, I got up and abruptly said, I'm sorry, I have to go. And I walked out. Thus ended the sneak date.
This wasn't just a sneak date. It was the worst date. What does this have to do with our story in Genesis? Well, a lot more than you'd think, and we'll get to that in a minute. In this story, God makes a covenant with Abram. God has made a promise to Abram, who was 90 at the time, and so was his wife, Sarah. I admire how honest Abram is with God here. God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And Abram replies, what can you give me since I still remain childless? God had already promised Abram what he wanted, and God hadn't given it to him yet. But God takes him outside and shows him the night sky. You will have a child, and his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. But Abram is struggling. He struggles, and he says, but how will I know? And this is where God does something ridiculous. God makes a covenant with Abram. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the mighty one, the great I am. God, the one of whom angels sing, the one whose anger is like thunder and whose mercy is like the morning rain, signs a contract with Abram. Abram has nothing to give God except believing in him. He has nothing to give God except himself. And God is offering him success and children and promising him that he is going to bless Abram and through him bless the entire world. This is the most one-sided bargain in history. Not that Abram doesn't have to do anything. He also has to do something ridiculous. He has to trust in God. God is going to bless Abram with everything he wants if Abram will just trust in him. But God is no longer saying he will. God makes a covenant. He makes a contract. God binds himself to this. God, who can do anything, create anything, destroy anything, has just made a promise to a human to bless him and to bless his children. That's what this strange ritual is. It's an ancient form of an extremely formal contract. It's the contract a king would make with his people. He would cut the animals in half, and then each group of the contract would pass through. The king would walk through, and the people would walk through, and that signified that both parties were on board. The idea was that if you broke the contract, what happened to the animals would happen to you. God knows that Abram cannot keep this promise. God knows that Abram will not be able to be perfectly faithful, so God does not let Abram walk through the animals. God keeps his promises, and if Abram passed through and was unfaithful, God would have to kill him. So God passes through the animals for them both. He holds both ends of this promise, and Abram is in the middle. Because God knows that Abram is the sneak date. Abram is earnest and caring and generally well-intentioned, but he is profoundly misguided. They set out on this adventure together, God promising to bless Abram, and Abram promises to trust in God. 
But literally, the story right after this covenant is made is how Abram and his wife decide that they don't trust God's promise anymore. This whole covenant thing, the darkness and the animals and the flame, that just didn't do it for them. They decide together that they really want a child and God isn't cutting it anymore. So Abram will have a child with a servant and they will raise it as their own. Then the most obvious thing in the world happens when Abram has this other child, jealousy sets in. So they kick out the servant in the middle of the desert with just a bag of water. And God has to rush in to save her and the newborn. Then an angel comes to them, an angel in the flesh, and tells them again that they will have a child. And Sarah laughs in the face of an angel. She actually laughs in the face of an angel. This is all in the Bible in the span of four chapters. Then God decides to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram starts arguing with God about this. And God actually slows down enough to talk to Abram, and they come to a compromise. Abram argues with God because in his infinite knowledge of the universe, he is pretty sure that God is making a mistake. Abram's brilliance is further revealed when shortly after this heated conversation, Abram and Sarah are traveling through the land of Negev, and while they're there, the king notices how beautiful Abram's wife is. And Abram, afraid that the king of Negev is going to kill Sarah, says, Ah, she's my sister. You can have her. This is God's representative to the world. This is God's date, and Abram is God's worst date ever. But the difference is that this was not a sneak date for God. God, in his actual infinite wisdom, knew what was coming, which is why he's holding both ends of the promise. He puts Abram to sleep and he walks through the animals for both of them because in the span of four chapters, God would have had to kill Abram about a dozen times. Abram has a promise from God and God is holding both ends of it. God is promising to bless and protect him, to give him a son, to use his children to bless the entire world. And God is also promising to be faithful. Because Abram cannot fulfill either part of the covenant. Abram is God's worst date ever. Sort of. In the season of Lent, we remember that we are a part of a long string of God's worst dates ever. If you had to guess how many people have sneak attacked God, how many people have promised dinner and a movie with friends only to reveal ulterior motives. I'll be faithful, God, if you'll just fill in the blank. How many people in history have ditched God when it wasn't convenient, tried to use him when it was convenient, misled him, lied to him, bad-mouthed him behind his back? God has had a long, long string of the worst dates ever. And in Lent, as we look at our relationship with God, we remember that we are children of Abram. As followers of God, we have promised to trust in him. That's what our baptisms meant. We died to ourselves to be faithful to God. 
We have promised to tend to the poor and needy in our midst. We have promised to continue learning about God and sharing him with other people. We have made a lot of promises to God over the years. Unless you're doing a better job at keeping your promises than I'm doing at keeping mine. It's a good thing that God is holding both ends of those promises. Because, friends, we are God's worst date ever. Lent is a designated season of apology. It is when we remember that despite everything God has done, despite how faithful he has proven through the ages to our parents, our grandparents, even in our own lives, that we struggle to trust him. We struggle to believe that he will provide. We struggle to walk faithfully with God. How much must God love us? How much must God want to be with us? How great must God's mercy be that knowing full well what a disastrous stream of worst dates ever was coming his way, he still made this promise. He looked at this whole situation, all your unfaithfulness, all my unfaithfulness, all the unfaithfulness of all of his followers over the centuries, and thought to himself, yep, that's worth it. Every way you look at it, we are God's worst date ever. Except when you look at it from God's perspective. From his, we're not. The sneak date I went on was sort of a train wreck, but it was extravagant. The problem with the date wasn't Casablanca and coffee. What made the date uncomfortable was the fact that the feeling wasn't shared. When the feeling is shared, we are willing to accept things that bother us, put up with things that drive us crazy, go on dates that are awful, and laugh about them later. When the feeling is shared, it's not the worst date ever. While Abram constantly messes up, he just as constantly works to follow God. He speaks with God, even if it's in arguing. He worships God even in the desert. He surrenders his son to God in a huge test of faith. Perhaps Abram wasn't actually God's worst date because Abram loved God back. My charge to you is to show God that the feeling is mutual. We will all have to sacrifice for our faith. It won't always be easy. Sometimes we'll have to do things we don't like. But along the way, hopefully, we'll be able to look around and say to God, Yep, that's worth it. Let us pray. Lord God, we realize that it is out of your infinite mercy and grace and love of us that we get to stand here and be beloved in your eyes. Lord, even now, the challenge for us is to show you that we love you too. That we put our trust in you, that we surrender our lives before you, and we simply ask that you continue to guide us, protect us, and bless us. Thank you for holding on to both ends of the covenant, both ends of the promise, so that we can boldly walk 
knowing that we are loved by you. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.